0: Well, as we talked about two weeks ago, this, of course, is the day of Pentecost. Uh, It's the day that they've been waiting uh, for, that God had, Jesus had told his disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes, until the Holy Spirit is poured out on you. And so we talked two weeks ago, as that happened, the Holy Spirit comes upon these 120 people in the upper room. They all speak in unknown languages. Uh, The people that were there in Jerusalem at the time for this feast are hearing the praises of God, the wonderful works of God in their own languages and thinking, what is going on here? What is this? And so Peter stands up because some of them are thinking, those guys must be drunk if they're speaking like this. And so Peter stands up uh, and he begins to preach to this crowd, this crowd of thousands of people who who hear what's going on, who know what's going on. And he basically says this in verse 14 of chapter 2, Peter standing up with eleven raised his voice and said, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose. This is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Then he goes to quote uh, Joel about the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh uh, in the last days. We talked about two weeks ago about what the last days are uh, and also about this uniqueness of the work of the Holy Spirit in the last days when God's Spirit won't just be upon prophets, priests, and kings, but upon all believers. He will dwell in all believers. And so in doing this, he, he ends in verse 21. And we see him ending with these words from Joel. And it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you might think after reading these verses from Joel that Peter would go in and start saying, Okay, let me explain to you what all these things mean. But he doesn't. He seems to just be talking about here what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. Because as he begins to preach after he reads these or or quotes this section from Joel, he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear my words, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's my theme, basically, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And this by itself even is significant, because here on the day, when you might say the church of Jesus Christ is born, on the day when God's Spirit is first poured out, Peter doesn't take the time to explain about the work of the Spirit as much as he talks about Jesus So so he wants those people to see, not just to understand, here's what God did, and this is why this is happening on this day of Pentecost, but he wants to know, we want you to know who's done this. We want you to know where this power comes from. And he begins to basically preach Jesus to these guys. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight is basically what that means, when Jesus is preached. And, and, And basically, the first thing we see is that he preaches what I would call the Jesus of history. Notice he says in verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, identifies him as from his birthplace, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now there's a couple of things here that are really important to notice. One is, is that the humanity of Jesus, the fact that he was a man was obvious, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, same where he's from. He, he refers to him specifically as a man. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we are so used to, in our modern evangelicalism, talking about the deity of Christ. Don't forget Jesus is God. Don't forget Jesus is God. Don't forget Jesus is God. And that's true. But actually, the, the, the emphasis in the New Testament often is in the humanity of Jesus. Because there are a lot of people who actually saw that, okay, Jesus could be divine in some way because he did all these miracles, but he wasn't a real man. And from some of those ideas that were creeping in in the first century came a heresy that we know as Gnosticism. Anybody here ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Yeah? Okay. That's a Gnostic gospel. It comes from, it was actually more like the second or third century when that was written. But it was basically came out of this idea that, uh, uh, that Jesus is just kind of the spirit emanating from the Father, emanating from, from God. And so they denied his humanity. Now, the thing is, he wants to make sure that these Jews know, look, this, I want to identify this Jesus. This Jesus that you knew was from Nazareth, the one that you knew was preaching throughout Galilee. And in talking about this idea that Jesus did miracles, wonders, and signs, it's interesting that he says to these Jewish men, as you yourselves also know. So it's not just the fact that his humanity was obvious, but the fact that he did these supernatural works was undeniable. Now, one of the things, this is one of the reasons this is important is because one of the truths that we see in the gospel accounts is nobody was denying that Jesus did the supernatural. No one denied the miracles of Jesus. What the Jewish people did was say, you only do those things by Beelzebub. It's only the devil that allows you to do those things. But they weren't denying the reality of those things. And so Peter's wanting to grab on that thing, Peter's wanting to say. Hey, listen, you know this, this man, Jesus, that was attested by God because of these radical miracles that he did. And so he brings that up, this, this the fact that his humanity was obvious and his supernatural works were undeniable. But Then he says in verse 23, him, this Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And we mentioned this this morning, didn't we? This reality that Peter is saying, listen, it was God's plan that Jesus be crucified, but you're the ones that did it, and you did it by lawless hands. In other words, his undeserved death is your, your fault, but God's plan. Now, this is an amazing reality that we see all throughout the New Testament. This this sort of, what we feel is a tension between the sovereignty of God, him having a plan that cannot be thwarted, and the free will of man, the fact that man makes choices. And we always treat it as, as this tension or this thing that we can't possibly understand. And the scripture puts those two things together naturally. That there's no problem between, there's no conflict between those two things. And to me, it just again, as I said this morning, testifies to this reality that that God knows what he's doing. And God is going to make sure his plan comes to pass and no man can thwart it. No one can mess it up. Now... That makes me quite sober about some things. One, it makes me sober about the reality of when I see that things are going to get worse and not get better, it makes me go, whew, you know, no matter how nice people try to be, it's, that's what's probably going to happen. You know, it is what's going to happen eventually. And, and then that also, though, it gives me great comfort because no matter how much I feel like I'm a screw up and I don't get things right, God is going to finish the work that he started in me because he's promised he's going to do it and no man can snatch me out of his hand, not even me. And so there's this reality that the sovereignty of God and the will of men, they, they, there's, no, there's no competition there. God knows what he's doing and he knows how to make things come to pass. In fact, Paul says this, what's almost a shocking statement to me, in 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which he has given us to us in Christ Jesus, and this is the ticker, notice, before time began. Whoa. I mean, think about that. That really kind of blows me away that that God from eternity past knew that he was going to make grace and truth, he was going to fulfill his purposes through Christ Jesus, and he gave us that before time began. How does that work exactly? I I I don't know. But it's a reality that should comfort us in fact, this is what, how Paul uses it when he, in, in the book of Ephesians. When Paul talks about the same idea of God's foreknowledge or our predestination, he talks about it in the, in the idea of, listen, you can know God's going to finish what he started because he planned this work before you were even born. It's an amazing thing. This in no way means that people don't have a choice to make this. In no way means that people uh, can't still be saved. Anyone can be saved. But there's this reality that God began something, or God knew he was going to do something from eternity past. And so so this point that that Peter's trying to make is saying, listen, they knew, they believed God had a determined purpose. They knew that God had a plan. The Jews thought that way. (laughs) What they they thought was this couldn't be God's plan because God wouldn't let his chosen king be crucified. Now, this is the exact same argument that Muslims make today. Do you know that? Muslims don't believe that Jesus was, was killed. Some believe that he was crucified, but he didn't die. And he was, they believe in what's called the swoon theory, that they took him off the cross, put him in the, in the tomb, he revived and walked away. Others believe that he was switched. There actually wasn't him, but God supernaturally uh, uh, sort of made Judas's uh, or Jesus' face. Uh, appear on Judas, and Judas was the one crucified. That's one of the other theories that they have. But they basically say, "Okay, no, uh, we think there's no way that Jesus could have been crucified because he was this perfect prophet, second only to Muhammad, and there's no way he's not God's not going to answer his prayers." But they forget what did Jesus pray in the garden? After Jesus prayed, "Let this cup pass for you, what else did he pray? Your will be done, your will be done. God. What's your purpose? For, for my life, what is your sovereign, perfect will? And God's sovereign will was for Christ to be crucified for my sins and for yours. That's amazing. So, so there's this reality that, that Peter's preaching this, this Jesus of history who's fulfilling God's plan from eternity past. Then he says in verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be Held by it. And so again, he he gets right to the resurrection as the evidence of God's work. Now, this this idea of, because it was not possible that he should be held by it, he's going to say, why? He's going to answer the question, why? Why was it not possible that Jesus be held by it? And here's what we get into as he's preaching Jesus. He preaches not just the Jesus of history, but the Jesus of prophecy. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, he's now going to quote, Psalm 16, David wrote, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. That's the abode of the dead, not necessarily hell. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For you have made me to know the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, uh, before we start interpreting uh, why or what is meant by Psalm 16, what uh, Peter sees Psalm 16 as mean, we'll get to meaning. We'll get to that in a second. But just notice first of all that David, when he writes this psalm, that basically his joy is based in the anticipation of God fulfilling His word. This is what his joy is. Obviously, he's writing this before he's dead, obviously. okay. So he's saying, you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. Now, uh, he's, he's recognizing that something's going to happen. When he's in the presence of God, he's going to have fullness of joy. He recognizes that. Because God's going to keep this promise, he says, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Just, just in anticipation that God's going to fulfill his word, David has great joy. Now I think that's brilliant because remember David was known as a man after God's own heart and part of that was because he took God out of his word. It was David more than likely, it was David who wrote Psalm 119. The longest uh, psalm in the longest book of the Bible and it's all about the glories of the word of God. Anticipating how God's going to fulfill everything that he said. So Peter then is going to, after he quotes Psalm 16, he's going to Interpret that, or, or yeah, he's going to interpret that for the audience he's preaching to. So he says, "Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you. You might say, let me speak confidently or boldly to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day." So he starts off by making it clear. Look, in fact, there's there's this idea here there's the, that when Peter is preaching this on the day of Pentecost, remember he's in the he's in this upper room, probably. Uh, uh, the the house of John Mark's mother, probably where they met before, probably the same place that Jesus had taught these disciples on the night before he was crucified. And it's probably in a place that is in pretty close proximity to the temple. And David's uh, tomb is actually on the top of Mount Zion. So it seems like the way that he's speaking, that he can actually say, you see that over there? That's David's tomb. He's dead and buried in there. And he's pointing this out because, guess what? That means this Psalm 16 can't be referring to him. Because he's seen corruption. His flesh is seen corruption. He's just bones now. That's all that's left of him in there. It can't be speaking of him, Peter's saying. And in fact, he says, Therefore, verse 30, David, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Now, uh, uh, Peter is referring to the promise that God made to David that that he would provide for David an eternal throne for someone from his bloodline. Now, take this out. God makes this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's wanting to build a temple. God says, you're not going to build a temple, your son will, but here's the promise I'm going to make to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep hole Sheepfold, from following the sheep to be rule over my people, over Israel. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. My mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established, notice, forever before you. Your throne shall be established, what does he say? Forever. Now, this is not just something that David thought or that maybe Nathanael thought. This is something that the Jews accepted. They were expecting. They thought when the Messiah comes, God's chosen king's come, he's going to sit on this eternal throne. God's going to establish his kingdom on earth when the Messiah sits on this established throne or this eternal throne. So he writes a praise on about it, Psalm 132 it says, The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set up your throne uh, I uh, will set up upon your throne the fruit of your body. This is what Peter's quoting here. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I teach you, their sons also will sit upon the throne. How long? Forevermore. And so, what what Peter's saying is: Listen, God made David a promise. He wrote these psalms or or spoke these psalms in Psalm sixteen and Psalm, uh, Psalm one thirty two in reference to the fact that God had made him these promises. And so, there was he saying in verse 31. He, foreseeing this, David foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, that is, the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so, Peter's making it really clear that when he quotes Psalm 16, David writing Psalm 16, he's saying, This is about Jesus. And it's specifically highlighting that he will have a physical resurrection. The Messiah will be resurrected physically. This is what we mean when we talk about the Jesus of prophecy. That he actually resurrected physically. This is a fact. Now, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of, of the Holy Spirit, He poured out uh, this which you now see and hear. And obviously, talking about what had just happened at Pentecost, the mighty rushing wind, like we kind of heard this morning. I was waiting for it to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> windows are shaking from that wind. I was wondering what's going to happen. And so they hear this mighty rushing wind, and it it's everybody's attention. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, tongues of fire on their head. They're speaking in, in languages that they don't know naturally, and it draws that crowd. That's what you see that He's referring to by what you see and hear—the outpouring. Of the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 34 For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Peter here is quoting uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. And in doing this, uh, in fact, the, the fact that David refers to the Messiah as my Lord is a hint to the deity of the Messiah, or at least the divinity of the Messiah. The Messiah wouldn't just be this great man, this chosen king, but he would be Lord. He would be he would be deity. In fact, this truth was so clear that this is how Jesus uses Psalm one ten. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of his day think he's blaspheming for making himself equal with God, he quotes Psalm 110, and here's how he uses it. So he asks them a question. He says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And so they said to Jesus, Well, he's the son of David. Just like we read, right? In 2 Samuel, that was the promise, the son of David. Well, Jesus says to them, How then does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus asked. if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on did uh, anyone, uh, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. And so Jesus, kind of getting sick of the questions, you might say, just says, look, let me make it really clear to you. This is what the scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would be. He would be deity. He would be, he would be from God himself. And so Peter, in quoting this, is wanting to make sure his audience understands, this is the Messiah that God's prophesied about. This is the Jesus of prophecy. Jesus fulfills all these things. And that's why you see the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon us. And that's why we are preaching to you, I am preaching to you now, this Jesus. He's the one that fulfills those prophecies. And so these guys are preaching, Peter is preaching to these men a message that could be really offensive. I mean, he he doesn't pull any punches. He's not trying to butter up his audience. He goes right for the jugular in verse 23, doesn't he? When he says, hey, you know, Jesus, we're, we're here to justify him. You know, remember the guy you killed? That's who we want to talk to you about. I mean, he's just really going for it. And then even bringing up this, this verse from Psalm 110, verse 1, he's reminding them of the things that had fed in them before about the very deity of Christ. This is hard for them. Now, this Jesus that Peter preached, the Jesus that we're called to preach, is not just the Jesus of history, nor the Jesus of prophecy, he is the Jesus who saves. We need to remember that, because look what he says, look what Peter says in verse 36. Therefore, he said, let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He wants these guys to to, to be really clear about this. Now, do you remember in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is wanting to have the Corinthian church have a right understanding of the work of God's Holy Spirit? He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, and it's really just one word in the Greek, it's pneumaticos, concerning the work of the Spirit. He says, concerning the work of the Spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant, and he says, no one says that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean no one utters those words, right? Anyone can say the words, Jesus is Lord. In other words, nobody can have that understanding, that revelation of the Lordship of Christ apart from a work of God's Spirit. But it also means no one's going to declare the Lordship of Christ and submit to the Lordship of Christ apart from God's Spirit. Now, I bring this up here because this is exactly what Peter's doing. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, what does he do? He preaches Jesus as both Lord and Christ. He doesn't flinch to say, this guy rules. This guy rules. Interesting, when in, in calling Jesus Lord, it would be an offense both to Jews and to Romans so any kind of Romans walking by during this time would have been offended as well. The Jews would have been offended because of the, or potentially so, because of the reference to deity. And I thought, wait a second, Lord, only, only Yahweh is Lord, so how can you say that about Jesus? They would have been offended for that sense. The Romans would have been offended because of their kind of pseudo-political religion. Caesar is Lord. And so if you're saying Jesus is Lord, you're saying that's a competition to Caesar. It's interesting too, because one of the reasons why a lot of Countries in history over the last two thousand years have wanted to make uh, Christianity an illegal religion because they see the competition. If Jesus, the use of the Bible, is Lord of all, that means their authority is under His, and they don't want the competition. This is why communist countries often forbid Christianity from being practiced, at least biblical Christianity from being practiced, because they see the competition. But uh, you know, Peter doesn't. He doesn't mince words. He just says it like it is. Boom. Now, he says he's both Lord and Christ, Christ being he's God's chosen king. This is, this is you know, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one who came from Mary's womb. This is the one from the lineage of David, and he is Lord. He's both those things. Now, also, though, because Jesus is the one who saves as Lord and Christ, as that perfect man and that God in the flesh... Because he's the one that saves, he also requires a response. And, 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 I, and I'm bringing this up because I think it's important for us to recognize if we're going to preach Jesus, we need to preach him as Lord and Christ. We need to share with Jesus, you know, or share with, share with people that, that Jesus, not, not just in kind of a an idea sense or in a conceptual sense, okay, that okay, Jesus is God, so if we understand what God's like, we understand that that Jesus shows us what God is like. That's all true. That's good that we need to share that. But also we need to say He rules. And the best way for us to share the Lordship of Christ is for us not just to say that He's Lord, but to live with Him as our Lord. As we let Jesus reign over our lives, as we let Christ reign in our lives, what can happen is when people say, well, why don't you do this? Or why do you want to do that? Or why is that your priority instead of this your priority? We can say very clearly because Jesus is my Lord and he's the Lord and he's worthy to be followed and trusted. Now, in, in doing this, he, it says in verse 37 that when they heard this, Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that this is the one that they've crucified. They've crucified their Messiah, they crucified God become man. However that works. It says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Men and brethren, what shall we do? Jesus, because he requires a a response, he, he always makes sure that he exposes our need. I mean, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what Jesus said would be the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the things the Holy Spirit would do. He says when the Spirit comes, what he's going to do is he is going to convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. That when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to work through people, and the Holy Spirit's going to convict them. They're going to be cut to the heart. Now, let me be really clear. For a person to be cut to the heart, the Holy Spirit has to be working. It's not about us trying to make them feel guilty. There's nothing wrong with people feeling guilty. We can trust the Holy Spirit wants people to understand their guilt. Okay? Okay? But it's important to recognize it's got to be this work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who cuts to the heart. It's the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and He opens us up. And He shows people, look, if you're rejecting Jesus, you're committing the the greatest sin. Because when Jesus Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, what's the sin? They don't believe in Me. Jesus said He will convict them, what? Of judgment. What's that? Because the, the, the God of this world's been judged they don't have to follow the sway of this world anymore. He will convict them of righteousness. Why? Because I ascend to my Father. In other words, He's the righteous one. He's our standard of righteousness, and He's our hope for being declared right with God. The Holy Spirit's going to convict that. He's always going to convict people about Jesus, and this is why they're cut to the heart. Because as Peter quotes, as Peter preaches Jesus, and they realize, man, we've reject. That's the Jesus that we, need, the one we rejected. They're cut to the heart and they're going, what should we do? Now, <laughs> wouldn't it be awesome if you're talking with someone about Jesus, explaining to your faith, they said, wow, that's amazing. What do I need to do? That's only happened to me once in my like 20-something years of ministry. Only one time. Only one time. Was, when I was doing youth ministry and teaching the Bible and, and uh, uh, Talking to kids afterwards, answering questions, and a young young a young girl actually comes up, and I said her name was Nicole. I said, hey, Nicole, what's going on? And I said, what, "What's your question?" She goes, "I don't have any questions. I just need to know what do I need to do to be saved? Uh, what, what should I do? I want to be saved." And I thought, "Wow, that's never happened before." <laughs> I've had people, you know, receive Christ or say the prayer or whatever the case might be, or but you know, I won't be Baptist, but never. What do I need to do to be saved? And I was like, "Wow, that's that's great." So I get to share with her about simple faith in Christ and what He's done for her. But the point is, okay, the response he calls us to, he, because he does require a response, he works by his spirit to expose our need. And this is important because sometimes I think when we're trying to share with people, in one sense, it's, it's good that we don't want to try to manipulate or pressurize. That's really good. another sense, it's like we're so afraid to hurt someone's feelings or to make them feel guilty, we're almost we're quenching the spirit. Not letting him do that work to cut to the heart. I think we need to make sure that we're not afraid to say to people, man, this is real. This, Jesus is alive. It's not me that you have to, to worry about offending. I'm in the same boat with you. That's why I put my faith in Jesus. Because he's my judge and he's your judge too. I mean, you need to think about You're, you're going to see him face to face one day. We're so afraid to do that, I think sometimes, guys. That we—it's kind of like—it's like we're trying to fish, and we put out this bait. Maybe the love of God is the bait, and we are we, trying to pull people in. We think, oh no, no, the, the hooks—it's hurting their mouth. Pull out the hook, put them down. Oh, jump back on the hook, jump in the net, please, fishy. Fish swims off. Reel that sucker in, gut it, clean it. God will resurrect it. <laughs> we need to make sure. We need to make sure that we're not afraid to let the Holy Spirit cut to the heart. Again, it's not us trying to make people feel guilty. It's letting the truth of Jesus, you know, convict let the Holy Spirit convict people with the truth of Jesus. It's not being afraid. And so they say, what should we do? And here's what he says. Peter said to them, verse 38, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of, of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, when Peter says repent, that, that's unfortunately become almost like a dirty word or a harsh word. Like we see someone preaching, repent, you know, you sinner, repent. And, and the reality is the word repent simply just means you've got to change your mind. you got to realize the way you've been thinking has been completely wrong. Again, we are afraid to say this, aren't we? We're kind of waiting to see it kind of happen by accident. Now, let me kind of be a little bit practical without going a little bit too long. I think one of the ways that we need to do this is we can share how God's brought us to a change of mind. How we realized, here's where I knew I was doing wrong. And here's how God's showing me what it means to, to repent towards him or to look towards him. Here's the things I was doing that God says I had to turn away from. And here's how I, he's called me to turn now to him and walk with him. Here's how God's changed my mind. Now specifically, when Peter's calling these guys to repent, he's calling them to change their mind about Jesus. Remember these three, these thousands of men that are listening to him, these are men, as he said, knew who Jesus was, knew that Jesus did all these miracles, yet did not see him as the Messiah. They weren't there praying, uh, you know, believing that he, he had been risen from the dead. They came back to do their Jewish festival, but they saw this work and they're like, what's going on? So he's saying, "Look, you have this wrong idea about Jesus. You didn't think he could possibly be the Messiah, but he is, and that's why what you see happening is happening." And so he says, "Change your mind. Be baptized. That is, have a new identity." Now, Jews would never be baptized. Gentiles would be baptized to become Jews, but Jews would just really never be baptized. It was a big deal to be baptized. It was basically saying, "My old life, in my old life, I was dead. In my new life, I'm alive." And so when he says, be baptized, he's saying, look, you need a new identity. Your identity as an Israelite is not sufficient. You need a new identity. He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's this idea, basically, he's saying, look, Jesus requires uh, requires of us a response because he's already provided for our forgiveness. Because he's provided for our forgiveness, he's not holding our sin against us. And so instead, he's saying, listen, I want you to turn to me, and I want you to put your faith in me, and I want you to identify with me in my death and my resurrection. Then he goes on to say in verse 38, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise, that is the promise of the Spirit, is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He's saying, listen, I'm requiring a response, Jesus would say, or or Peter would say, he's requiring a response of you because he is also providing for you the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that was doing this radical thing that made them all stand up and pay attention, he, that Holy Spirit, is going to live in every believer. Every single believer. Now, it says in verse 40, "...with many other words Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, "'Be saved from this perverse generation.'" Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now this Jesus who saves, he doesn't just save out of a perverse generation, he saves into a new family. That's why we're, that's what baptism is about. That's why a lot of churches, church traditions say you have to be baptized to become members of that church. They have that tradition, even though I don't necessarily agree with that, but they have that tradition for a good reason. The good reason is they recognize that Look, this is us identifying that we are part of the body of Christ. And that's why they do that. Now, there's a reality here that, that we're going to get into next week when we talk about uh, the rest of the chapter 2. But I'll just close with this. Peter, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and God has done something supernatural, doesn't just say, hey, watch me do something more supernatural. He preaches Jesus. He preaches Jesus. And we should follow suit.